Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Victor. Foxtrot. Authentication. Delta Golf. I say again. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. This is collapse health. From London, England. A podcast about mysteries, the paranormal, and phenomena. You are listening to Anomaly. Here is your host, Glitters. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Anomaly Paranormal Podcast. Apologies, it's been some time since I've been here, but uh, behind the scenes I'm beavering away. This time round, we go back to Christmas 2017 when I had the opportunity to interview a guy from the north of England. He's an investigator of UFOs and the paranormal. He's an author and currently has two books out under the title Truth Proof 1 and 2. We go to Yorkshire now and we meet Paul Sinclair. And next in line is a man up in Yorkshire. A very good guest indeed. A favourite of mine and a favourite of some of the friends of mine as well. Author and researcher Paul Sinclair lives with his wife and family in the seaside town of Bridlington on the northeast coast of Yorkshire. The coastal area around Bridlington has a deep history of folklore, strange sightings and mysterious disappearances. Paul is in the middle of it all, investigating strange phenomena in the area since 2002. Published in 2016, Paul's first book entitled Truth Proof is a collection of first-hand accounts and recollections of local UFO activity, missing people, alien big cats, missing aircraft and other anomalous phenomena. I'm going to get that word right tonight. Paul is a thorough investigator who is not content with hearsay or rumours. He studies and researches his subjects to the minutest detail, looking for the documented evidence that backs up everything in Truth Proof. For Truth Proof, Paul has interviewed witnesses to events far stranger than anything reported worldwide. Some are recent, some historical, but they're always fascinating. Paul is well known locally for his work and has many friends who rely on his credibility and confidentiality. Truth Proof is his first published work, which showcases his efforts to collate the strange truths that surround him every day. From his home now in Bridlington, Paul joins us. Hello, Paul. Hello, Paul, and great to uh, be talking to you tonight. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. I oh, appreciate it, buddy. Uh, that's quite a bio that you've got there. Yeah, uh, you give me a great build-up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I can be interested enough for your listeners. I'm sure you're going to be absolutely fine. Uh, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got interested in all of this subject? I think uh, with many researchers in this subject... I think you're involved in it from an early age, at least I was. I know some people probably get involved after a sighting probably later in life, but I I seem to have been immersed in unexplained events from childhood. And after sort of getting married, I don't know, 35 years ago and bringing children up and running through life, I'd got all this information in my head, but I packed in work uh, when I was 48. Well, I haven't because I'm doing this. This is full-time. And that's what I've been doing. I'm 55 now, and basically, I, I would have thought every every waking hour, I'm 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 somehow involved, somehow in some way involved in unexplained events and and stories and collecting information. I mean, it, it's not all about me. It's about the witnesses and it's about the people. But it's feet on ground and going to speak to people. I think that's what it's all about. Not just sat behind a keyboard. You know, so pumping second-hand information out, it's first-hand information that's crucial, I think. I think you're right. Um, you, you've 
got one book. Well, in fact, you've got two books out now. Is the that right? The second book were out last Wednesday. Uh, well, two weeks ago. I apologise. Not last Wednesday. Two weeks ago. Oh, Truth, Truth Proof Two: Beyond the Thinking Mind. It's kind of a follow-on from the first. There's no, there's nothing repeated. It's just it's just more information that came to light whilst writing the first book. And it just it just rolls. It's like a snowball. It just gathers and gathers. I mean, I'm onto new cases now that I find that I think they're even more fascinating than what's in first two books. I think the thing that fascinates me the most, Paul, is how much stuff there is that happens in such a small geographical area. Do you know, Paul? I think it's everywhere. I don't think I don't the 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 locations within the small geographical area are unique you know i mean but i think these kinds of locations are everywhere all over the world it's just it's just be it's just picking up on all the little uh, unusual bits of activity and and piecing it together and packing meat around the bones of of the story and the location and you'll find that these places are are all over the world i think it just depends i mean not everybody's got a, a full day, seven days a week to devote to searching for this stuff. I appreciate it because I couldn't do it when I was working as a joiner, you know, bringing my family up and everything. It's only since sort of devoting full time to it that I'm, I'm able to absolutely immerse myself in the subject. Absolutely. Let, let's talk about the area that um, we're going to be discussing tonight then. Um, could you describe for the listeners where exactly it is in the UK and how big this area is that we're going to be talking about? Well, well I'm on the East Yorkshire coast uh, in Bridlington, but the, the books cover East and North Yorkshire out to sea because I'm, obviously I speak to a lot of trawlermen and, and people who work the sea living literally I'm 500 yards from the beach and onto the eastern North Yorkshire Wolds and the North Yorkshire Moors so we, we I mean the book the first book covered like a 30 mile radius of RAF Bempton they stuck a pin in a map and everything sort of centred around there but it, it, it expands I mean we, we're talking about it's probably a 40 to 50 mile area of where I'm sat uh, right now in Bridlington Okay, so it's a fair amount of ground to cover. Yeah. Um, t- talk to me, if you would, about RAF Bempton. I'm ex-Air Force, and I'd never heard of it until I read your book. So RAF Bempton first came, it, was, it came to Flamborough originally in 1940, but the elevation weren't high enough. So that same year, it, it was established in Brent Bempton, where the cliffs range from 250 to 400 feet at the highest point at Speeton. And it stayed there till 1968. It says 68 it closed, but it were actually still run... They were still manned till 72. And it was an experimental station twice in its existence. And basically, it were, it were working in conjunction with RAF Staxton Wold and the other RAF bases around Great Britain. That played a big part, I should imagine, in the Cold War. Okay. Yeah, there's, a sub, there's, a, there's an underground bunker at Bempton, uh, which is quite extensive. Uh, it's sealed off now due to... Uh, due to unwelcome visitors after it closed in the mid-70s, it was, there were a satanic cult using, using it intermittently between 70 and 95. Uh, but there's, there's just no access to the place now. Uh, you know, it, but it's a proper, absolutely fabulous structure below ground with 10-foot thick walls that are reinforced with tungsten rods and a 12-foot ceiling. It was designed to take the impact of a thousand pound free fall bombs, the Russian bear aircraft or a near miss nuclear blast. So it's substantial as you can as as you can understand. I can imagine. Um Staxton Wold from my recollection was a radar base. Um did they have radar at Bempton as well? They, they 
it did. It was a radar base. That's what RAF Bempton was. And Staxton Wold is still operational. It's the oldest operational radar base in the world. Uh, Staxton Wold, and that's probably 11 miles from where I'm sat right now. Okay, that's interesting. So, the underground bunker, have you been inside yourself? I have. Uh, I, I went in it many years ago, and then when I was writing Truth Proof, writing the first book, I contacted the farmer and asked if I could go and take photographs, which he allowed me to do. But uh, it's since I've, I've, I've probably asked him four or five times since, and he's very reluctant because they, they get unwanted visitors on the base all the time, people trying to access the underground bunker. Uh, by whatever means they can, sort of breaking into it, you know, trying to get through air ducts and everything. Uh, I think it intrigues them because the the walls of the the bunker are festooned with uh, demonic paintings, and they're quite good as well. I mean, the area must have been lit up for these paintings to to have been done, and anybody who's mildly interested wants to Google RAF Bempton, you'll see remnants of them. I mean, a lot of plasters act off wall now and it's all sort of disintegrated, but there's still quite a lot to see. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, been in, I've been down inside it and I found some archive reports which are interesting because the online drawings don't depict it as being as big as what it is, but I've got news, I've got news reports from, from the 1980s when people were breaking in, stealing the copper and uh, sort of valuable wire from the facility talking about 900 900 foot passages that they were finding people in uh, you know when they were searching for people so that's quite extensive if you've got a building below ground with 900 foot passages absolutely it is um with with the kind of activities that are going on around there do do you draw any um links to places like montauk in the u.s i I think i think there's there's, there probably is links i don't think there were anything experimental uh, to, to the degree that you're talking about there at Bempton, I think it was more experimental radar, and I know they they were they were working in conjunction with a, a, a Project Winkle, which I believe is still classified. There's not a lot of information about Project Winkle, uh, so yeah, it was more of an experimental radar station. I think the satanic cult element. I mean, with the things that are happening around Bempton and have been happening for years and years. I mean, they. They just may have known the significance of the land, and you'd got a you'd got a discreet location, like a subterranean bit of bit of earth that, that they could get to and practice whatever it was they were doing. Because it would obviously it's deeply taboo. And if they've, I should imagine, if they've highlighted one unusual incident, the kind of things that's been happening up there, it, that's probably why that that cult was operational intermittently for for, for, for over twenty years. Yeah, the, the old saying of money goes to money, strange seems to go to strange as well. I think so, yeah. I mean, like, what, like, I echo it all the way through the book, location is key. But, but I don't think, as I said earlier, Paul, I don't think Bempton is unique. I think these places are all over the world. I think it's just a matter of picking up on them. And, I mean, during the daytime, it's a visitor, busy visitor res- reserve bird sanctuary where people come to see the seabirds but it takes on a completely different persona in the evening i suppose most places that are dark are but the things that have happened there are quite incredible so the rspb reserve that's up that way is are we talking one and the same place with the old raf bempton no no the the, the raf bempton's got barbed wire fencing around it and it's 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 not linked to the rspb reserve but the people who want to visit 
the, the RAF base illegally would park on the RSPB reserve because after 4.30 on a night that's shut up and we're in a remote location. Nobody's there, so they'd park up and probably walk towards the RAF Bempton. That would be the easiest way. I mean, I'd, I've done three routes when I was sort of researching it, looking into the missing men that have gone uh, around the cliffs of Bempton and Flamborough, and I've walked off... The, the, the RSPB reserve It would be the place of choice if you were going to park and get to the uh, the, the RAF base. OK. Now, the RSPB reserve, I believe, is when you had your first sighting. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about that and just talk us through what happened? Yeah, well, I'd, we'd had sightings before, but the first sighting I'd had on the cliff tops that's quite interesting. I'm, off the top of my head, I think we're going back to 2009, and I was fitting a floor safe with a guy called Mick Marsden and Ted Cosford. And because of the reserve having expensive cameras and, and telescopic gear inside it we had we had to work through the night and they had to be a member of staff on with us you know we couldn't work during the day we'd got kango amas chopping up this reinforced concrete floor i don't mind talking about it now people because anybody thinking of burgling the place it's totally been revamped <laughs> i didn't want to talk about a safe, a safe, a safe under the floor and <laughs> you wouldn't get people th- to it. thanks it's, for it at it's all, a new it? it's a new building now people but uh, so we had to chop up this floor safe uh, the old one and install the new one and heavy work with an industrial Kangoama. And I went out, I don't know, 10, 10.30 in the evening, I can't remember exact time. And I looked from the entrance of the the uh, RSPB and I could see two two orange lights in the sky, which I thought were afterburners from jets. But bearing in mind the location were absolutely devoid of any sound or any light pollution. I couldn't hear anything. But then I also noticed a ball of light low to the ground and it looked like a bicycle light. I would think similar to a bicycle light and it it was travelling along the cliff tops, it, it, following the curvature of the land. And it, it puzzled me. I took my eyes off the orange lights and I'm looking at this and I could see skeletal remains of RAF Bempton sort of silhouetted in the night sky. And this, this white light then turned and went up towards the base now the RAF base rises at a 40 to 45 degree incline with a barbed wire fence all the way around it but this ball of light just carried on going it didn't climb the fence it wasn't somebody you wouldn't you'd be you'd, it'd be suicide to ride a push bike along a two to three hundred foot cliffs or 400 at speed in any way but it was nobody on a bike but this thing just carried on going straight up as though the fence weren't there and up and over the base and vanished and sort of puzzled me. I didn't know what I was looking at and I'd heard the stories from some trawlerman that I'm friends with about the light forms and the lights out at sea. But then, the two orange lights had disappeared, but there was five orange lights in a row. Now, this is a familiar sight to the trawlerman and a famili- it's, a, it's a familiar thing reported in the Bridlington Free Press and the Scarborough Evening News spanning decades. Not the five necessarily, it could be three, could be two, but these are the flares that never were. These are what I've written about in the second book, uh, where the Coast Guard will send the lifeboat out for sometimes nine-hour searches for distress flares that they suspected because the members of the public are reporting these orange lights. And like I said, these these anomalies have been reported for for decades and decades, going back to the 50s. I've found them in archives where no explanation has been found for these things. And then the following week, the newspaper would come up with an explanation and they would say, all in the same explanation, it was probably unusual atmospherics 
or afterburners or military jets exercise, on exercise or perhaps weather balloons or meteors, all for the same explanation, basically they haven't a clue what these lights were. Um, I mean, since going through the logs with uh, down at Bridlington Lifeboat Station for a number of years and, and talking to a few at staff, they've, they're actually, I don't mean they're believing that there is something to it and I've convinced them, but they're realising there's a pattern forming where they've never really had an, an explanation, but the staple ex explanations offered up, coughed up by the authorities, and I suppose the people who are giving these explanations actually believe it themselves because they're not looking for an alternative. They're not looking to, th to think that what, what I've been talking about, what we've been looking at on the East Yorkshire walls of calling them the intelligent life forms, these things really exist. I'm of that belief, and I think what they're seeing over the sea are exactly the same thing. It's interesting stuff. I think um, what we're going to do, Paul, we're going to take a very quick break, and okay. we'll come back to you afterwards, and we'll discuss more about the RNLI crews and what they've seen, and also some of the searches that they've carried out at the sea there. Yep, yep. Fabulous. You stay there, please. is the fright before christmas get in touch now email us at studio at hcrfm.co.uk it is hcr 104 fm with the fright before christmas i do like to play a little bit of music specifically specifically that one it's a great song. Okay, I'm going to get my teeth back in and reintroduce Paul Sinclair, who's on the phone to us from his home in Bridlington. You still there, Paul? I am, yes. Excellent. Good to have you there, mate. Um, so we were discussing the geography of the area and where the RAF base, etc. was. Now, let's talk about some of the sightings, if we can. Um, you said that uh, the RNLI stations, which uh, for people living abroad, is basically um, where the lifeboats are stationed for you know, emergencies out at sea. Um, you, you were allowed to look at the logs? Yeah, they, they, they're quite open. and I mean, we've got a new lifeboat station now, as from this year. And I know a lot of the data uh, has been changed over. It's a different kind of system because last time I was down there, the employed member of staff down there said, uh, you know, anything you want, sort of get in quick and because we're not going to be able to access it. I mean, I could go right back to the 70s, uh, you know, <laughs> during their logs when I was looking into the crash of XS894, the lightning that crashed uh, over the North Sea on September 8, 1970. You could get information about that. That's a case that particularly interests me, to, um, in fairness. Would you mind just um, filling people in with what happened there? It, it involved an RAF Lightning with an American exchange pilot that uh, that t took off, allegedly, to pursue or intercept a UFO off Flamborough Head or over the North Sea uh, in September of 1970. I haven't got the information at hand, so I'll, I'll be as good as I can with it, people. But... So, but um, there was a radio transcript put out uh, years later, I think, of a guy called Pat Otter uh, first brought the story to fruition. He worked for Grimsbury Evening Telegraph, and Tony Dodd did quite a lot of work on it, and I contacted Tony and told him I'd got new information, and did he want to do a bit of work with me on it? And to his credit, some of the information I'd got was not UFO-related, but I believe it were a red errand to put me off the, the case or put me off the UFO trail, because I, I firmly believe there was something UFO-related about this story now. And uh, I, I started receiving 
I got I got letters, unsigned letters, telling me a, a, why the pilot was never found in the Lightning because it crashed. I think it was it was found ten miles off Flamborough Head. The cockpit was down, and the uh, the American Exchange pilot had disappeared. Uh, but I was told it was the letters basically said that during the Cold War, Russian divers were in factory ships, trawlers. Uh, off the east coast and north coast, sniffing out Filingdales and, and around the area, and they got to the di- they got to the pilot first, because basically we'd got an American exchange pilot flying the fastest aircraft allegedly in the world at the time, which was the Lightning. It, I mean, there may have been some other project that were a lot faster, but that's what the public knew about, and he was testing new flight suit technology, and that's what the divers took him for. But as I say, I think that was a red herring. The the plane crashed. In uh, September, on September the 8th, but what's interesting is we had uh, two RAF marine launchers based in Bridlington uh, uh, at the time, in Bridlington Harbour, and 12 days before that marine launch, the uh, aircraft crashed, one of the marine launchers off Bridlington was struck by an unknown submerged object. Either it struck the object or an object struck the boat. I mean, the, the captain of the boat at the time in charge said that it was clear of any known obstacle and they don't know what ripped a 12 inch by i think it was a 25 foot hole in the side of its hull and it had to be beached on north beach now i'd like to stress to anybody listening that doesn't mean a ufo is involved but we're looking at an unusual incident in a close time frame to another highly unusual incident and then also two days before the lightning crashed i mean this is sunday september 6th Five people were in a small speedboat, the father and his children and a, a young girl that wasn't a family member, and the wife was watching from the shore of Bridlington. That was struck by an unknown submerged object and disintegrated. That's the, pe- the newspaper probably made it sound more dis- exciting than it was. It says disintegrated. It, was, it absolutely shattered the boat, and the occupants were in the water and had to be saved. The, the, the husband or the father of the children was in quite a bad state and, and close to death when he was found. He was picked up by uh, a pleasure cruiser called the Glen Rose. Once again, does that mean a UFO were involved? No, but we've, then we've got three highly unusual incidents, all within a small time frame. And then in October, uh, it, it was announced that the, the Art Royal had changed its... its uh, sailing route or whatever maritime terminology you'd have to use for that and we're going to be anchored off Bridlington quite unusual and you know biggest uh, shipping navy's fleet at the time so yeah it, it, it were, it's an unusual case is XS 894 and Tony Dodd dropped it because of death threats I mean I, and I don't think I'm saying anything that's untoward there I think he made it clear that at the time when he were researching it for his book Alien Investigator that uh, he found it an highly unusual and sort of dangerous case to be looking into. But I've not got loads more information about excess. I mean, that we could make it last an hour and a half if we've talked about it and broke it down in detail. Absolutely. Yeah, but I think... Th- um, so, sorry to cut you short there, Paul. Um, I, I, going back to the time, I mean, the, the, the lightning was phased out of service a long time before I joined the military. Um, but um, the, we, I was always told that with the lightning, if the pilot ejected... Um, it was an absolute last-ditch thing um, because the pilot would lose his legs above the knee. Um, because there was, of the shock. 
Well, it was the fact that uh, the legs under the, well, I call it a dashboard for the sake of argument, um, the dashboard came too far forward towards the pilot. Uh, so, I see. So it was in the mind of the pilot. Now, this is rumour, I don't know if it's true, but that's certainly what I was told. Um, so the pilot would know that if it was time to eject, it was going to be a bad time one way or the other. Um, so that that sort of lends credence. Do you know, was the ejector seat still in the aircraft when it was found? It was. And, and, and do you know what's interesting? Uh, the, the aircraft was pretty much intact when it was found. Right. Uh, I, 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 one, of, one of the divers who was still alive who assisted in the search... Uh, he's told me all about it, and I've seen photographs, and th- there weren't that much damage uh, to say it's crashed into the sea. I mean, basically, a, a, a lightning is like a flying dart, Paul. You'll know more about it than me. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the, the aircraft were pretty much intact when it were found. Well, the, the lightning isn't the type of aircraft which was designed to hit the water softly. I mean, some planes you can land on water if you absolutely have to. You you saw that with the airliner in, on the Hudson a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but with the lightning, it's got the engine at the front uh, with the intake, which will act as a large scoop as soon as it hits the water. Um, but the weird thing about it, from my perspective, is that, um, going back to what you were saying about potential Russian divers, etc., if you were a diver, getting to the plane any time after it had crashed... Um, you know, you've got to get there rapidly before the rescue boats get to it. Yeah. Um, and if you were in a hurry like that and you removed the pilot... Um, it took them a month to find the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that. Um, that I, I don't think these letters were just a red herring. No. But I, I don't want to jump from lightning, but I'd just like to add, in this particular area of sea, there's not, that's not the only aircraft that's gone. Okay. ZA610 went on December the 12th, 1985. Uh, ZE, let me, I, I can't think of its code name, ZE723 uh, in uh, July of uh, 1998. And, and at the time when that one crashed, there were loads of talk on the internet and loads of talk on the news about that being UFO related. It was the same year. We're only months, if people might remember, when the... The alleg- allegedly, the UFO the size of the battleship were being pursued over the North Sea by military jets. I don't know if anybody can go that far back, but that was 1998. But uh, do you want to stick with excess here, then, Paul? Well, j- just very briefly, yeah. I- I'm just going to get back to the the business with the divers. If you were going to remove a pilot from mm-hmm. a downed plane, um, I'm pretty sure the last thing you would do is put the canopy back on. Um, it's just not going to happen, is it? Well, that's that's correct, and the trans the transcript, whether it's fake or genuine, I, I mean, it could be fake. But it, the Shackleton that were doing the reconnaissance, reconnaissance and looking for the aircraft said that the canopy they could see the aircraft on top of the water, and the canopy was up, and there was no sign of the pilot. Uh, obviously, a month later, they found the aircraft. But that sort of makes makes you think to yourself, well, if they could see it and they, they plotted a location. Why didn't they find it sooner? Why did it take a month to find that aircraft? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what sort of equipment was fitted to it to help find it, but uh, yeah, it's a strange one that one. Um, let's go towards the intelligent light forms um, as described in your book. Um, now, I, I've I've read about it. Um, I'm trying to get my head around it. Can you describe to the listener what an intelligent light form is? Is is it potentially um, a light that has its own consci- uh, consciousness? Well, 
again, it's only my thoughts. I'm, I'm no expert on this, but it's, it's, it's speculation. We spent a lot of time, years in fact, on the East Yorkshire Wold, which is inland from the, from the coast, probably 10 to 20 miles, documenting these lights that the farmers around the area were seeing. I mean, I first was contacted by one farmer and then an old network of them, it turns out, had been looking at these things and watching these lights above crops that were appearing and there they they seemed to be some kind of mental uh, feeling or awareness to these lights. I mean, many times that me and Steve Ashbridge could go up there and we'd set up cameras on, on particularly Easterby trailers in Cotton, uh, where that, that area, and we'd, we'd set up cameras for two hours and pack the cameras away and suddenly that appeared. And we, we, we were all, we got us to the point where we were saying, we'll pack cameras up and these things will appear. And, so, and they, sure enough, they did. And, they'd, and, and as, you're, as you're setting the camera up to film them, they're switching off. Uh, or they're appearing in the sky and you can, you're observing them, and an helicopter will come from another direction, and they switch off. These aren't flares or some military exercise. Uh, I mean, I can, I'm saying that off t people might think, well, how do you know? We, unless you've spent years and years up there in the silence of the East Yorkshire Wolds on cold, bleak nights, and suddenly something's appeared, and it's not that far away from you. We're not talking like uh, aircraft in distance of sort of 15 to 20 miles. We're talking within a mile of you, and it's in, it's in the air, and it's just hanging there, and all of a sudden it punches one, two, three, four, five into a row of five, switches off, and then moves to a different part of the sky and turns back on again. You realise you're not dealing with a meteorite or a Chinese lantern or unusual atmospherics. You know, a, a lot of times with the lights over the sea, Paul, you know, the RNLI go out to investigate uh, based on what the Coast Guard's been told or the lifeboat station directly. And uh, these guys probably in many instances have not seen them. They're the second-hand witnesses, and they're the ones reporting to the paper the following week, and it's pure speculation that they're saying, we believe it could have been meteors, we believe it could have been a Chinese lantern, or we believe somebody were letting off flares. Because the, the actual first-hand witness is bypassed. It's the lighthouse, uh, the lighthouse, I apologise. It's the, the lifeboat and the Coast Guard that are putting the report to the paper in the following week, to a, to a lay witnesses and people who'd been observing these lights off the coast. Uh, so, so the actual first-hand witnesses very rarely get to put their point of view to the paper. And the ones I've spoken to in many instances said, there's just no way. I mean, I took a, nuclear, uh, a geophysicist up there called Andrew Eels in the summer, and he was lucky enough to see them. And he, he, he did me a paper on them and broke it down from the elevation that we were and he worked it out the, the distance from the cliff to wh roughly where he was watching these objects on the horizon. He, he really did a good job on them, and he, he watched these. He had no explanation for this row of five lights that suddenly appeared above the sea, shot out a tube of white light, went up, he estimated, approximately 500 feet, turned to 45 degrees, and then went straight up. You know, I don't know what we're dealing with. I've not got an answer to what we're dealing with, but I... I will put my hand on my heart and say that we're dealing with something that is totally unexplained. Uh, there might be people listening and going, oh, he's, mis he's misidentifying this or that. I assure you, I'm not going to spend bulk of my life in remote areas looking for these things and trying to document it and, and, mis and mixing the sightings up for planes or, or Chinese lanterns. It's, these are definitely not that, Paul. No, probably not indeed. Um, is there um, a common thread 
through the sightings that are made? I mean, are the lights generally the same colour? Um, do they do the same things? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that the lights generally don't act in the same way as flares. Well, no, they don't act in the same way as flares. We've seen them twice this year. Earlier last year, we were, we were up there and there were rock anglers are allowed to fish the cliffs at Bempton for a few months a year when the seabirds aren't nesting. And they were all witnessing them th- themselves. And these lights, on a clear star-filled night, you can see the boats out on the horizon. They're a good reference point for anyone saying, we, you're just looking at a film on a black background, you can see the lights of the boats. These lights just switch on. They literally just switch on and they'll stay motionless and probably just punch into two, three, four, five in a row. They might move down in one unit like a train would do and then stop and then go up vertical or they'll switch off and appear in a different part of the sky. Now, I don't know any flares that are capable of doing that. And there's no. And what's also interesting is they're so vivid, yet they're not illuminating much around them. There's no sign of smoke. There's no sound of a discharge. There's no aircraft. I'm. I'm. I'm not just trying to stress that they're different. I'm. I'm telling the listener that these things are different. And people know when things are different. I, I think um, certainly there used to be a lot of uh, public information films that, that showed um, flares at sea, what to look for, how to contact the Coast Guard. Um, and certainly in seaside communities, people are very aware of this sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, people do look out to sea, not in the hope that they're going to see something, but um, it's a bit like Neighbourhood Watch almost. You know. Well, well, you know, these these things are seen, and once again... The area is throwing it up. I don't know if you listened to the talk I did last week or on the unexplained. I did, yes. Uh, am I okay to touch on that for a second? Yeah, we're going to be quick. We, I tell you what, we're going to take a break, and um, then you can go straight into that when you come back. How about okay. that? Thank you. Fabulous. Okay, just going to have a quick break, and we'll be back after that with Paul Sinclair. And it's 16 minutes before 9 o'clock and uh, HCR 104 FM with the fright before Christmas. We're going to uh, bring Paul Sinclair back. Uh, Paul, you were asking me if um, I'd listened to your uh, interview on The Unexplained with Howard Hughes, and I certainly did. Um, the listeners may not, so if you'd like to uh, put them in the picture. Yeah, obviously I were talking about similar things, Paul, to what we're discussing today. But quite unexpectedly, Howard told me that he'd received an email the, the week previous so we're going i think i've got a date actually for it even though i haven't got a date off the witness yet although and I, but i have spoken to him i have exchanged a bit of correspondence and i think it might have been the 14th of december and basically i haven't got it in front of me the wording but howard read out on air what, what he'd been told and this chap went for a walk with i think it might have been his wife he parked up at the rspb reserve at bempton and walked towards flamborough during the evening and on the walk back I think he said it's approximately 7 o'clock there was a huge flash of light in the sky at the bottom of the cliff path before the 10 minute walk back up to the car park Uh, quite confused wondered what this light was and what could have caused it because it made everything like daylight for a split second could have been some kind of sheet lightning I suppose what's interesting is when they got back to the car they'd lost several hours of time um, I, I can't give the listener tons more information on it yet until I've got a lot more information from the actual witness myself. But I think it highlights what's happening in the area. Uh, I mean, because that comes as a, I don't mean a shock, but that came as a surprise that I just happened to be talking and a week before Howard had had this, this email sent to him. 
which is absolutely brilliant. I was thrilled to the guy contacted me, and in his initial contact, he told me he's absolutely a debunker and a non-believer in all things unusual. However, he cannot explain this, and he's trying to piece things together. And we're going to meet and talk shortly. Good. So where the two hours went, I don't know. I mean, there's a walker early, only a few months ago, six thirty in the morning. And I'm, I'm assuming, listening to reading between the lines, it's in a similar area at the bottom of the cliff path. He saw two lights over the sea and went and filmed them. He come to my home. He rang me and asked if he could come. Uh, and he got the two grainy pictures of these lights, which quite honestly could have been boats on the water. They were that poor. But he'd also got footage on his phone that he claimed he didn't take of something white and dimpled, a bit like checker plate steel. And it just looked absolutely up close to the camera. And he, it's... He said, I, I got back to car park. He had no missing time. He walked, you know, he actually lives in Bempton, this guy. So he walks up Cliff Lane and back. He says, but I got back to the car park and I was terrified. He says, I don't know why. He says, and I had to get home. Now, what it was, we, I don't know. There's, there's a build-up to the Cliff Lane story, which I've been working on for the last six months, with a lot of information and a lot of things coming to light. But uh, really, you know, I mean, I don't know where you want to go next, Paul, so... We're just going to quickly go back to um, the email and the person that you're now in touch with. Um, now, I was listening to Howard's show while I was doing something else, so apologies if I get this wrong. No, no. Um, did, do I recall you saying, Paul, that you were walking up the coast at the time that was or a rough time? We think we were. Me and Bob Brown, Beacon of Light Radio host. Right. He's, he's the guy that saw the witnessed the lights under the sea with me uh, earlier this year. We, we've been going up to Bempton and you hardly see anybody. Paul, you just, he's devoid of anybody once it gets dark, that area. Yeah. You might see lights around base by people trying to get into it, like we've told you before. And a couple did pass us. Uh, and, but we've, I've got to admit, I never saw no flash of light. I'd love to add to not the excitement, but add to the story by saying, yeah, we saw the flash of light, but we didn't. I didn't see True, a flash of light. True, but then you, you didn't suffer from missing time, no, so not at all. maybe the two things are linked. And but, but, uh, uh, well, one more element to add. I have been contacted by a, a man who lives in Hornsey. I realise that may, will mean nothing to the listeners, but it's six miles away. It's another small I'm, seaside I'm town. I'm looking at the map now, so it's yeah. about a third of the way down the coast between there and Spurnhead. Yeah, apparently social media uh, on the Hornsey page, uh, on, on that date... Uh, people were saying, did you see that flash out to sea? Uh, so Interesting. It, it was seen. Uh, I've, I'll be able to sort of fill you in with more and write it up when I actually get to speak in, in, in depth with this witness. OK. And they're quite keen to talk to you? Well, there seemed to be. I sent them an initial email and uh, I got no reply, so I thought I'll have one more go. And, it, and the guy replied to me and he says, look, I'm a few hundred miles away from home. I'm travelling home now. I'll be contacting you over the weekend. And he sent me about 10 lines of his confusion at what happened and so basically backing up what Howard had said on on air. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, interesting. I'm quite intrigued to, to listen to what this guy's got to tell me. And it's that time of year as well where sort of most people are away from home or, um, you know, just not available for one reason or That's another. That's correct. Christmas time as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've, you've summed that one up, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned about seeing lights under the sea. Um, could you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I, I don't think I've got the dates in front of me, but uh, it was about three, three or four months ago, me and Bob Brown went up there because there's been a lot of activity. There's been American uh, trucks up there with what looked like satellite dishes on, 
fact, up around area. Nobody's reported them in papers, but uh, I've got proof of it if anybody wants to buy Air Force Monthly because somebody else has seen them and took a picture and they're asking what they are, and they've seen them in Scarborough, which is a few miles away. That went November issue of Air Force Monthly. Uh, but, yeah, me and Bob were up there, up around the base, and we'd, we'd sort of walked up towards Speeton. I got a phone call while we were up there from a guy who told me his daughter had just seen a large cigar-shaped object over Sledmere as while we were on the cliff tops. I mean, anybody who knows Bob Brown, contact him and get that verified. And on the way down, I'm looking out to sea, and I could see three dots of light under the sea. And they're quite substantial and really well spaced apart in a perfect triangle, but I'd like to stress, I don't, I'm not saying it was some huge object under the sea. It was just, it was three perfectly straight or evenly spaced lights under the sea. So Bob's had his, a knee operation, so he was a bit slower. I asked him if he could see them, and he couldn't. So I was running down as fast as I can get, and I get to, to within level with these things, and they're about half a mile, three quarters of a mile out. I've got a Sony, uh, um, Sony, I've got a Nikon P100, P900 camera, so it's got a fab fabulous zoom on it, and I'm snapping photographs of these things, these lights, which I've sent, they're on Whitley Streber's site, I think, at the moment, but I've got my own as well, obviously, because I took them. And they're, they're just clearly lumin luminous lights under the sea. It's not dark. We can see them. By this time, Bob can see them. He made a good comment, because I'm taking pictures, that the sea was steaming above the lights. And they were there. I mean, it, it must have took me 10 minutes to get to level with them. And Bob was sort of five minutes after me. And then we, we sort of observed them for about 30 minutes, and they just slowly moved away and went, went out to sea. What, during that sighting, both me and Bob sort of both went, wow, what was that? And a rectangle of red light lit up on the cliff top and just switched off. There's no vehicle there. It's quite bizarre, so that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, Paul, um, how deep is the sea at that point, do you know? Yeah, I've, I've, I've spoke to rock anglers and, and what have you. It's, it's quite a rocky area as well, but you'd mm. be looking at 60 to 160 foot okay, in various places. With the rocks, I mean, you, you don't potentially think we could be looking at submarine activity? Uh, I, I wouldn't think so, but I, I, once again, Paul, anything's possible. I wouldn't, I, you know, I'm, I don't, I, I, everything I'm looking into, I can't, I, I shouldn't be tagging it with, with some totally out of this world, unexplained theory. No, quite right. You, you know, so I don't know, Paul, but the three definite circles of light under the sea, which we've got photographs of. It's very interesting. You mentioned um, in passing there Whitley Strieber. Um, most of us who are interested in the subject know who Whitley is. Um, I, are you friends with the guy? Well, we're friends. He, he contacted me in 2006 when I was running the ILF Intelligent Light Form website because he'd been looking at the stuff I'd been putting on. Uh, uh, you know, on various websites around the world sort of thing, like, I can't think of them now, it's years ago, but, uh, and he asked me if I wanted to talk on his show, and I, I declined, but I told him about the things that had happened to me in my childhood and why I was so immersed in subject, and he gave me another chance about two or three years ago, and I spoke on his show, and I've spoken on it three times now, and, well, once only a few weeks ago, talking about Cliff Lane and a few other incidents, and, yeah, I've, I've, I've I've got him to thank in a way because I don't think I'd have written the books if it weren't for him. He, you know, because some of the things that I've experienced during childhood, seeing these things, uh, I'd, I'd not even spoke about. 
Interesting. Uh, just, I just hadn't. Paul, you've got. Uh, we're, we're running very short on time now, but um, just to let people know, I mean, you've got two books out at the moment. I believe you're working on a third. Um, let's talk about how we get hold of your books and how much they are, if you would. Um, they're on a, available on Amazon. Is that right? They're available on Amazon. You can order them through sort of Waterstones, and they're available through PayPal. Uh, on, on this website that we've set up, which is uh, truthproof.webs.com. Or, as I say, you can get both books on Amazon. Just type in Truthproof. They're £11.50 each. Uh, read the reviews. Don't take my word for it. Just, you know, read the reviews on first book. I've only got one re- review on the second book so far, but it's only been out uh, like a week and a half. Uh, and, yeah, they're there. And uh, have a look. Don't take my word. I think they're great. <laughs> But I'm going to say that, but, uh, you know, the, the, the readers, the, the, the people who've read the book sort of seem quite happy with what they've read. Well, I've, mean, I've read the first one, well, the um, second one's and got, I think it's great. Well, I've got words from Peter Robbins, uh, Whitley Strieber, Nick Pope, Charles Holt, who they've all read the second one and sort of offered words of sort of praise for it. So I don't mean all these people are perfect, but it sort of adds a lot of weight, doesn't it? No, the famous Charles Holt. Um, Paul Sinclair, it's been absolutely great having you on the show tonight. I want to say thank you very much. And uh, just wanted to wish you and your family a great Christmas. And the same back to you, and thank you very much for allowing me to speak. No problem at all, Paul. Take care, my friend, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. independent media. Comments and beliefs of guests do not necessarily reflect the views of those behind this podcast. Thank you to Dutch musician Michette for our great theme tune. Visit his site at michette.com or look for his work on SoundCloud. Please visit our website at anomaly.co.uk and email us through studio at anomaly.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at AnomalyCast. Watch out for the latest episode of Anomaly.